Campaign finance law varies state to state, so you already have a patchwork of laws. This might actually make the patchwork a little less patchy, in the sense that this is going to strike down a bunch of laws uh, in the long run that restrict corporate spending on politics. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California, even though we've been rain-drenched lately. Bob is away on business today. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And I'd like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com forward slash law. And Clio, it's a web-based practice management software for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, last week in a 5-4 to four decision in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, the Supreme Court under the First Amendment ruled that the government may not ban political spending by corporations and unions in candidate elections, radically changing campaign finance law. President Obama spoke out against the decision, saying he couldn't think of anything more devastating to the public interest. In an interview on Face the Nation, Senator McCain, who helped rewrite the nation's campaign finance laws, remarked that campaign finance reform is dead. On Lawyer to Lawyer this week, we're going to look at the Supreme Court ruling and the impact this ruling will have on state, judicial, and legislative elections. And to help us do that, our first guest today is Ned B. Foley. He is the Robert M. Duncan Jones Day Designated Professor in Law at Moritz College of Law. Professor Foley has been the Director of Election Law at Moritz since its inception in 2004. One of the nation's preeminent experts on election law and administration, Professor Foley teaches and writes in all areas of this field. Welcome to Lawyer Lawyer, Ned Foley. Good to be here. Thanks. And our next guest to discuss this topic is Professor Adam Winkler. He's a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law, a specialist in American constitutional law. His wide-ranging scholarship touches on diverse issues, including the right to bear arms, the right to vote, freedom of speech, affirmative action, judicial independence, constitutional interpretation, corporate social responsibility, international economic sanctions, and campaign finance law. Well, Professor Winkler's scholarship has been cited by the United States Supreme Court in the case of District of Columbia versus Heller and was quoted in Justin Stephen Breyer's opinion. He also blogs for the Huffington Post. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Adam Winkler. Thank you for having me. Well, Adam, let's toss this one first to you. Let's discuss the ruling. Can you give us a little bit of history about it? Well, this case began as a relatively minor case about how the ban on corporate funding of election ads applied to a political movie about Hillary Clinton. Under current campaign finance law, corporations and unions are banned from making direct contributions to candidates. And under uh, the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law, they were banned from taking out independent expenditures, uh, basically advertisements that mention a candidate but fall somewhat short of 
explicitly endorsing or arguing that you should not support a particular candidate. And the makers of this Hillary Clinton movie had received a small amount of corporate funding, and there was a question about how the ban applied to them. And after hearing the case, the Supreme Court, and this was the unusual part, reached out and told the parties they wanted to hear the bigger question, not the small question about how this law applied to the Hillary Clinton movie, but whether the underlying uh, ban on corporate funding of uh, independent expenditures was constitutionally permissible. So the court told them to re-argue the case, addressing the bigger, more important constitutional issue. Well, Ned, does, does the uh, campaign finance laws have its initiation, I think, in, in the Nixon years? Is that when it got started? Well, it goes back even to, to Teddy Roosevelt in, in some form. Um, they've, they grew after Watergate, to be sure, and the, and the major piece of, of federal legislation is, a, is a, a law that was enacted right after Watergate. But the roots of the ban on corporate spending, again, go, go back to the 19th century, and then in the middle of the 20th century, and, and, and Adam knows this history better than anybody, and has written about it, but in the middle of the, of the 20th century, I think 1947, was when the particular law was put in place that was at issue in the Citizens United case, or one part of it. There, actually, there were two laws in front of the court in Citizens United, one from 1947 and then the new McCain-Feingold law. And this ruling actually takes a big step and overrules two other cases, I believe. Correct. Um, in 1990, uh, the Supreme Court had a case out of Michigan involving a state law that paralleled that federal ban from 1947. And uh, so Michigan had said, with respect to its own elections, we, we don't want corporate spending on advertisement. And the Supreme Court had upheld uh, that ban um, in the case called Austin. And, and when we use the term ban, by the way, um, there's kind of a colloquial use of that. The part of the, a big part of this case is about the fact that corporations were required to set up separate political action committees uh, if folks associated with the corporation wanted to get involved in politics. So there was this other outlet. The ban applied to what's called general treasury funds, which is the corporate's main you know, source of money that it gets from shareholder investments and profits on its business and so forth. Um, so the Michigan ban of that type uh, was upheld in 1990, and that precedent was used in 2003 for what was then a landmark and thought to be a landmark decision in the McConnell versus Federal Election Commission case, which was a, um, one of the biggest cases in U.S. history in terms of the size of the record and the number of pages the Supreme Court devoted to it and the length of the oral argument in the Supreme Court then in, in another five to four vote, but that time in favor of Congress had upheld the McCain-Feingold law, including a portion that um, for purposes of federal elections said, as, as Adam was alluding to earlier, we want corporate money off limits, not only when it explicitly says vote for Smith or defeat Jones, but any ad within 60 days of an election that's broadcast that mentions a candidate name, because we know that the reason those ads are up there at that time is to influence an election. Well, Adam, this is this was definitely a 5-4 vote, with a majority saying it's a First Amendment violation, and the dissenters saying that corporate money can't flood the political marketplace, and, corru and if it does, it's going to corrupt democracy. What's your perspective on that? Well, I think the disagreement between the majority and the dissenters in this case was really about how to best protect democratic self-governance. The majority thinks that the greatest evil to democracy is the government 
getting involved in elections and censoring various kinds of perspectives. Uh, and they thought that cor- by banning corporate speech in this way, uh, the government was engaging in that kind of censorship. The dissenters, however, believed that the greatest evil to democracy is the fundamental inequality that comes from allowing corporations, which raise their money in the economic marketplace from shareholders and investors and consumers, to be able to transfer that fund, those funds into political power uh, and to overwhelm uh, the individual voices uh, that uh, don't have the opportunity of limited liability and the corporate form to raise their funds. Is there a, I mean, there's some movement afoot in Congress to deal with this ruling. Do you think that uh, if, could Congress pass a, a campaign finance law that would pass the, the test set out by the majority? I think it's possible. We'll have to really see what can get through, right? As you mentioned earlier, John McCain says campaign finance reform is dead. And if you can't get any Republican votes, if you can't count on uh, uh, Senator McCain's votes, for instance, uh, we know that a bill is not going to be able to pass through uh, Congress. There might be the the ability to restrict um, uh, those government contractors from making various kinds of expenditures. There also might be potentials for reform at the state level. The court did mention that uh, states still had other kinds of regulatory mechanisms uh, at their disposal uh, and didn't make exactly crystal clear what those might be. But you can imagine all these corporations are creatures of state law. State law could be revised uh, to, say, require uh, some measure of shareholder support before these expenditures are made. Uh, There are other potential corporate governance reforms uh, that might be undertaken. We'll have to see what some of the proposals are um, uh, and whether they might be effective. Oh, yeah. Um, just to jump in on that, I think it is worth distinguishing, as Adam was doing, between the, the political question of where the votes are in Congress to pass any new measures versus the legal or constitutional question of, of whether or not what they adopted, if they adopted it, would be acceptable to the, to the Supreme Court. My own view of the case is that while um, this was a major decision, to be sure, there is still a considerable amount of of regulatory uh, uh, discretion or or, or, or um, maneuvering room that Congress has uh, if it cho- chooses to exercise its powers. I don't think the the Supreme Court, um, despite this decision, has has completely eliminated Congress's ability to take effective action. Well, Adam, there seems to be some mindset. I, you know, I think perhaps maybe only in the bunker mentality, folks, but there seems to be some mindset that this somehow is granting corporations the rights of individuals. What's your thoughts on that? Well, the corporate, the, the the Supreme Court basically said that that uh, corporations have always had some constitutional rights, or at least since the late 1800s, have been recognized to have some constitutional rights, and have always had, in some ways, uh, a freedom of speech. But traditionally, the court had said that the freedom of speech that corporation have, corporations have isn't exactly equal to that uh, that individuals enjoyed. The, the logic and reasoning of this case uh, suggests that uh, corporate speech should not be distinguished on the basis of the identity of the speaker and that it is just like individual speech. I don't know how serious the court's going to take that idea and um, and run with it and maybe even overturn uh, the law, the Tillman Act that Ned mentioned earlier, the 1907 law that originally banned corporate contributions to candidates. If you think that corporations are the same thing as individuals, uh, why don't they have the right to contribute to candidates like individuals? Why don't they have the right to run for office like individuals? Uh, it seems uh, foolish to think that corporations are going to run for office and they're not going to, but logically, why couldn't they if the court's going to say that they're the same as an individual acting in the democratic sphere? There are some who would ask, how do you put a corporation in jail? 
That's right, and it's been a, that that's one of the issues. And so, of course, corporations need some constitutional rights. They need a constitutional right to have property. They need a constitutional right to be able to sue and be sued. Uh, they need uh, some measure of constitutional rights so that they can advertise their goods and wares. Uh, but uh, to say that they have the same right to engage in political speech. Uh, against a history, a long-standing tradition in American law and politics to restrict court, the corporate voice in American politics and American elections, I think is somewhat troublesome. Yeah, um, my view may be a little bit different from Adams on this, although I largely agree with him. I, I think it's important for everybody to be careful about not painting with too broad a brush. And, and I think Justice Kennedy, there's no doubt in some of his language and his opinion, for the majority, paints with a broad Brush, but I think it'll be hard for some of that to to hold up um, uh, as as this principle gets tested over time. And likewise, I think some of the statements that are made by you know um, opponents of this decision, and I, and I count myself as as one of them. I'm no fan of this decision, but um, I think it's possible to overstate the argument on the other side as well. And and I think. The reason why uh, Kennedy spoke broadly is that he had what he thought was a very broad statute in front of him. The law in front of him applied to all corporations, whether for-profit, non-for-profit, big, small, whatever the industry, whatever the activity. Um, and it was a uh, an absolute prohibition on general treasury funds. There wasn't a ceiling. It wasn't like you could spend you know, $1,000 or $10,000, the ceiling was zero. And the Kennedy uses the word asymmetrical. He says it's an, this law is an asymmetrical response on Congress's part to the problem of, of potential corruption of the political process by corporate entities. So I think the question going forward is what would be a symmetrical response? And, and one thing I think that's going to help us think that through is different kinds of corporations and the different ways they operate in different sectors of our national life. Um, you know, some corporations feel like private sector entities, like a local dry cleaning, you know, business, a mom and pop organization that that is incorporated. And the image that Kennedy had in mind when he wrote this opinion was that corporations are private sector entities. They are in the private sector the way individual people are. They're not the government itself. But if you look at other cases from the U.S. Supreme Court, including an eight-to-one decision from um, the 1990s involving Amtrak, um, the court said Amtrak is part of the federal government, even though Congress actually wrote the Amtrak law to say it's not part of the federal government. But the Supreme Court Justice Scalia writing a very nuanced opinion said Amtrak functions as a part of the federal government, and Congress can't, under the First Amendment, make it a private corporation. So the line that's going to be important for the court to draw, and this decision last week did not begin to draw it, is which of those corporations have the character of being in the inevitably in the public sector, like the Federal Reserve System, you know, like Amtrak, versus which corporations are like a dry cleaning local, you know, a mom and pop store that should be considered as in the private sector. That's where I think the action's going to be. If that's the distinction, Ned, I don't think that um, 
I don't think that there's many exceptions that can be made to the freedom that was articulated in this case. I mean, Amtrak was deemed to be a state actor for constitutional purposes, part of the government. But that wasn't just because uh, the, the justices decided that Amtrak was like the government. It was completely governed and run by the government. Congress said it's a private corporation, but then dictated how its board of directors would be chosen, who got chosen for the board of directors, how it would operate, set rates, and a variety of other information. If we're only talking about limiting so-called private corporations that are really part of the government, state actors for constitutional purpose, well, maybe Amtrak can be restricted and maybe a few other corporations, uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, we might think of a couple others. But uh, that's a very, very, very small percentage of the corporations out there that are going to be affected by this ruling. Yeah, I guess, um, and, and I think, you know, Adam and I are sort of debating this among people who, who share the basic same, you know, approach to to how the law should think about this problem, but but I would argue that you work outward from that core fact pattern. I think that it, while it is true that only a certain amount of corporations are going to fit a core cluster of being governmental entities, there's a broader category of sort of quasi-governmental entities, including natural monopolies. So, again, for state law purposes. You know, here in Ohio, you know, we have um, private companies that no one would think of as part of the government, heavily regulated as gas and electric utilities because of their natural monopoly characteristics. I would say that's an extension of the Amtrak concept. It's not the exact same concept as Amtrak. Likewise, I think you can argue that the healthcare industry today 16% of the national economy, you know, there's this whole debate about whether we need a public option or not. Opponents of the public option say regulate health care like a utility the way Switzerland does. I think you can look at the healthcare sector, like the f- banking sector, as a sector that is off limits to, to last week's ruling because of the character of that industry as being acutely um, public in nature. Um, you can't do it for every industry. I'm not sure you could do it for Walmart in the retail industry or McDonald's in the hamburger industry. I do think there is a category called too big to fail. Because any corporation in America, whatever its particular business, that is too big to fail, by definition, has quasi-governmental status. And I think there's going to be an interesting, you know, so GM, for example, I think fits in that category. I think if Walmart were deemed too big to fail because of its size, it would fit into that category as being beyond the scope of the right identified in, in last week's decision because of its size, not because of the nature of its business. There have been some statements made that perhaps up to 24 states' individual laws have come into question because of this ruling. And as I think Adam mentioned, there's a good possibility that states or maybe looked at the ones that regulate this issue. Are are we going to end up with a patchwork of 50 different kinds of regulations? And how is that going to play with the national media? Well, uh, I don't know if you were directing it to Ned or myself. I, I, I think that you're not going to have – you have already have a patchwork of different laws. Campaign finance law varies state to state. So you already have a patchwork of laws. Well, this might actually make the patchwork a little less patchy in the sense that this is going to strike down a bunch of laws uh, in the long run that restrict corporate spending on politics. And I think that where you're going to have the biggest impact because of this uh, is not necessarily the national media. I think this is going to have a huge impact impact on state and local elections. The smaller the jurisdiction, the more the impact this ruling
selling is going to have. Because Walmart doesn't really want to take out a national advertising campaign pro or anti-Obama. They're going to lose too many customers if they do that. So they're not going to be interested in the federal elections. Where they're really going to focus their money and overwhelm the power of other voices is in small local elections. Some local official uh, opposes uh, eliminating a zoning restriction so a Walmart can open. Walmart will take out ads that will completely overwhelm other potential sources of funding in those local elections uh, and get the candidate they want elected to office. And I think so in those smaller elections where there's a lot less money and the corporate money, when it does come in, can have such a much greater impact, I think you're going to see a really huge impact from this decision in small jurisdictions, local governments, uh, and maybe even some small states. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it depends on how Congress responds and how the state responds. I completely agree with Adam that the, that there is this risk of you know money flooding the system, particularly in state and local elections. But I think um, those who who care about democracy and, and want to protect democracy from corruption and, and and improper influence should be should. Um, I mean, we have to deal with this decision. It's out there. It's not going away. And the question is, what maneuvering room exists? And I would say, um, think about ceilings as opposed to complete bans. I think if there is a a real threat that in a particular state or locality that you know a flood of money is going to um, have corrupting influences, then I think you 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 pass a law that has a ceiling. The way we you know we we don't have a zero limit on contribute. We do for corporations. There is a limit of zero on corporations, and that, you know, might be vulnerable, although the Supreme Court upheld it in a seven to two decision not that long ago. But, you know, for individuals, there's a, you know, ceiling of a a couple thousand dollars or so. For PACs, it's, you know, there, there are certain dollar limits. Put a dollar limit on this sort of corporate spending, and then go back to court and say, we really need this dollar limit, and we can show you why we need it. No guarantee of success in the court, but I think you've got an argument that that's a symmetrical response and therefore okay compared to what the court invalidated last week. Ned, we need to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk more about the Supreme Court ruling and what kind of impact this ruling will have on campaigns. Don't miss out on the latest in new media marketing opportunities for your firm. Contact Deb Curran at 781-551-9960 and learn all about the Web 2.0 revolution. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Coming soon, you can listen to Legal Talk Network shows and get CLE credit at West Legal Ed Center. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're back with Professor Ned Foley, the Robert M. Duncan Jones Day Designated Professor in Law at the Moritz College of Law, and Professor Adam Winkler, Professor of Law at the UCLA School of Law. Ned, I know you've got a tight time schedule today, so if we can, let's get your final thoughts about this topic and your contact information, and then we'll finish up with Adam after we get that from you. Uh, 
sure. Um, you know, my basic thought is, I mean, a lot of people out there are saying it's the sky is falling as a result of this decision. It's a big deal. I don't want to minimize it, but I think um, there is a risk of being unduly alarm, alarmist. I think there are appropriate responses that state, local, and co- legislatures and Congress can take to limit the impact of this uh, decision from being destructive on on democracy. I would view this decision as you know as a snapshot in a in a in a moving picture. In other words, you know, it's it's campaign finance regulation is an inherently complicated and difficult subject. There was corporate influence in American politics before this decision last week liberated it more so. We all remember the Harry and Louise ads from the healthcare debate of 1994. Those ads were permissible back then because they weren't devoted to a candidate election. They were just trying to do grassroots lobbying so that Congress would kill, you know, then President Clinton's health care proposal. It was an incredibly effective ad. It was paid for by corporate money. That was there was a First Amendment right to do that before yesterday's decision. So we're arguing, I think, in America somewhere, you know, around the fifty yard line. The 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 proponents of corporate speech were able to move the ball down the field uh, in the direction that they wanted to move, no doubt about it. But they may not be able to, in the next round or two of fights, be able to keep the ball, and they may not get all the way to their end zone. Um, There will be counter-responses, there will be countermeasures, and there is an ebb and flow to campaign finance regulation that's inevitably. And while right now it's clear it looks like who's got the upper hand, you know, five years, ten years down the road, as we process this opinion, as we look at legislative responses nationally and, and, and at the state level, the, the scope of this ruling may look more limited than it does, uh, does today. So that would be my final thought. Um, and your contact information? Sure. Um, my email address is F-O-L-E-Y dot 33, the number 33, at OSU.edu. That's for Ohio State University, uh, OSU.edu. And um, you can also access me through the website that we run at the Election Law at Moritz program as part of Ohio State University. So if you Google Election Law at Moritz, M-O-R-I-T-Z, you can easily find me that way as well. And I've enjoyed it very much, and, and thank you. Thank you, Ned, and we appreciate you being on this morning. Adam, let's um, turn back to this discussion about uh, the state's rights and the state's rulings. What do you think is ultimately going to happen? Do you think Congress is going to be dealing with this, or do you think the states are going to take over? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, predicting the future is always a difficult game. I, I do think that there seems to be quite a bit of outrage about this opinion, and so I think that you could see some real efforts to move uh, move the regulatory ball forward uh, at the state level. Maybe something at the federal level. I think that right now it seems to me that the federal government is really having uh, is really struggling to enact legislation on any kind of controversial or partisan issue, uh, and this is one of those issues that's likely to be partisan. So I'm not I'm not expecting any uh, rapid response from Congress, um, but maybe you'll see some reforms at uh, the state level. You know, we talked about Walmart making some efforts in some local elections. Do you expect to see or could there be any kind of local regulation on uh, campaign spending? 
There could be, uh, absolutely. I mean, this decision does not say that state and local governments can't find, uh, can't enact regulatory responses. You can take some of the proposals that uh, that Ned mentioned, maybe putting a cap on a spending limit on uh, corporations in elections. That could be enacted at the state level. It could be enacted at the local level. I'm not as sanguine as Ned is about uh, the ultimate success of such a law in in the courts, especially this uh, this Supreme Court. But uh, it's certainly possible. State and local uh, officials can adopt their own campaign finance laws. They already do have their own campaign finance laws, and they can make efforts to respond to this opinion uh, to limit corporate expenditures in their uh, elections. Now, we, we have a 90-page dissent from Justice Stevens in this opinion. We've seen a number of 5-4 decisions come out of the United States Supreme Court. What's the bigger picture here in terms of how the Supreme Court is reacting to uh, the, the things that are coming before it? And is this divide that we're seeing going to continue to last? Well, I think it is going to continue to last. I think that there's the possibility of some retirements in the near future, but it's most likely that the, the justice most likely to retire next would be Justice Stevens, who's uh, in his late 80s, although he's in good health. Uh, he might want to retire under a Democratic president, although he was appointed by a Republican, but he's definitely on the liberal side of the uh, of the court now. So people are expecting him to retire, but his replacement's not likely to change the dynamic of the court if his votes are if the replacement's votes are similar to Justice Stevens. We do have a court that's made it pretty clear that it's not shy about aggressively asserting its constitutional vision. Since uh, Chief Justice John Roberts and Associate Justice Sam Alito joined the bench, um, joined the Supreme Court bench, uh, from issues ranging from abortion to racial preferences, from the right to bear arms to campaign finance law, the court has shown it will not defer to the elected branches and will, if necessary, overturn years of precedent. Uh, I think the court, we're sort of at, at a point where we have uh, democratic control of the executive, democratic control of uh, the legislature in uh, Congress, uh, and what you have is conservative control of the Supreme Court. And historically, where the other two branches are uh, are controlled or dominated by one political party, we wouldn't we're not surprised when we see the court become the check on the excesses of those parties. I think you could see if there was a, a massive health care bill passed. I think you could see the court step in and invalidate provisions of that. Uh, of that health care reform, even if under current constitutional doctrine and current precedent, we would expect those laws to survive. I think you're going to see the court being a check on the other branches of government uh, uh, and protecting a sort of a more conservative understanding of the proper role of the government in, uh, in social life. Well, and we've come close to reaching the end of the program, so it's a good point in time to wrap up and get your final thoughts on the issue, along with your contact information like we just heard from Ned. Sure. My final thought is there's one perspective, I think, that really is absent from all the pages of the dissent, all the pages of the majority opinion, and it's this fundamental idea. Corporate speech is not free. It's not free because corporations are not truly free to choose to spend their money how they wish. Corporations are creatures of state law. State law dictates that corporations shall spend their money in the interests of the corporation. An individual can choose to spend his or her money however they want. You're familiar with the, old, with the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, right, about people in Kansas who seem to pursue political visions that are contrary to their own self-interest. A corporation is legally banned from doing that. A corporation has to spend its money in a particular direction by law. 
So corporate speech isn't free. It's legally directed. And because the court didn't really understand corporate law and how corporate law works and really didn't think through the implications of saying corporations have complete free speech rights, I think that you have a ruling here that um, in which corporate law is the elephant in the room. Uh, it's not really being understood or talked about in the way it probably needs to be. Um, I think that uh, we're certainly going to have uh, an, uh, an interesting time with campaign finance law in the future. We're going to see a court that's relatively hostile to campaign finance law, and we should expect to see more campaign finance laws invalidated uh, uh, by this court. Uh, and uh, and that's what I think we'll see in the future. If anyone wants to reach me, I can be found uh, a Google search of my name, Adam Winkler, comes up with my uh, faculty webpage here at UCLA, and so it's very easy to find me. Or you can send an email uh, through a link on that page or through uh, directly to Winkler, W-I-N-K-L-E-R, at UCLA.edu. Great. Well, Adam, thank you very much for being on the program today. And for our listeners, that wraps up this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And again, a very special thanks to our two guests for being with us today, Professor Ned Foley from Moritz and Professor Adam Winkler from UCLA. Uh, Don't forget, for listeners, you can find all of our Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes as well. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.